it started with what is the chai that I love drinking, right? Like all recipes are inherently personal. So we lead with the personal weight. We're not trying to be the perfect chai experience for every South Asian person in the world. You know, the way that I drink my chai and my dad drink my chai are completely different. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Sana Javeri Kadri is the founder of Diaspora Co., an equitable and highly delicious spice company paying an average of six times the commodity price to 150 farm partners across India and Sri Lanka. On this episode, Sana unpacks exactly how Diaspora has expanded their scope and scale while remaining true to their mission, plus moving back to Mumbai and much more. Sana Javeri Kadri, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be sitting across from you. Me too. I feel like you're not often in New York these days, so it's special. Yeah, I moved to Mumbai, right, like about four months ago. So my New York trips are like two a year at this point. So I'm glad we snuck it in. A little farther to get to. A little bit. How has Mumbai been treating you? It's been amazing. I think personally, I moved away from home when I was 16. So I moved 14 years ago. And, you know, work allows me to be in India quite a bit, uh, about half the year. But I wanted for it to be a bigger move so that I could spend more time with my family. So I think personally, it's been incredible. I think work-wise, it's going to take some adjusting to because we have half of our team in India who love having me around. I think there's 12 of them in India, but then we have 10 in America. And I think for them, there's there's still a organizational process vacuum from me being gone that we're going to have to solve for and figure out. But I'm here four or five months of the year still. It's it's a work in progress, basically. Yeah. And I feel like the time difference must be like pretty fro- profound between the two. It's- horrible. Like you cannot name a worse time difference. It's 12 and a half hours. So it's like right as somebody's waking up, the other person is falling asleep. It's not kind. It's like a long distance working relationship. Yeah, I think we're, we're, there's 22 of us all in long distance relationships and it's fairly painful. Oh my God. You need like a group couples counselor. It'll be fine. When you went back to Mumbai, was there like one thing that you had to eat right away? Always. It's Pani Puri. So Puri means it's like a crispy, um, wheat shell and then you fill it up with usually it's like sprouts and potatoes with chaat masala and then you dip it in this like really tangy like mouth puckering spicy sour um pani or water which is made with cilantro and tamarind and uh kala namak which is like black salt and the best is always eating it fresh at a roadside stall so essentially like they make one you pop it in your mouth you make one you pop it in your mouth so that it's like crunchy on the outside and then it explodes in your mouth mm. so straight off of the plane i'm going to the roadside pani puriwala it's the best. That sounds so good. I had that at um, Damaka on the Lower East mm-hmm. Side recently, but I've never had it like that fresh. And I do imagine that like there's no sog at all. It just must be like the perfect ratio Crunch. and texture. Oh, okay. So I want to talk about your travels because I know that you've been doing development for the Diaspora Co. Cookbook. And I'd love to know just how that even came to be. Where did the idea come from? 
I've wanted to write a cookbook since I was 16 years old. You're like um, a cookbook groupie kind of, right? Yes, 100%. Okay. Like I have hundreds of cookbooks at my house. Uh, the Eat Your Books website is like my favorite website. Um, I think you recommended this to me when I was working at BA in like 2018 and I use it all the time. Yeah. It was because of you. And I, un- until this moment, I think I forgot that. I feel so proud that I got you onto that. <laughs> An influencer. <laughs> Influenza, as they say. Um, <laughs> but I... I love the Eat Your Books platform. I use it all the time. But I think that I always knew that it was going to be a cookbook. I don't think I had the like, it was either going to be a cookbook that was like my family recipes and like more about my story. And I think at, you know, the right, we signed the cookbook deal when I was 27. So we signed it a couple of years ago now. I think there was a feeling of, I have a long, wide life ahead of me. Um, and like the, the cookbook about my family stories will come. Um, but for now, the magic for me of the past five years has been our relationships with our farm partners at Diaspora. So you know, Diaspora is a spice company, but we work with 140 farmers across India and Sri Lanka. And I visit their homes roughly once a year. Our sourcing team now also visits them really regularly. And what's always stood out to us in um, our visits is is the food, you know, is eating in these incredible farming communities' homes. And so it's like, how is this beautiful pepper called Aranya pepper um, that grows in the hills of Kerala used in traditional northern Kerala cuisine? And it's used in a super peppery, fiery rasam. It's used, uh, which is like sinus clearing and incredible. Mm-hmm. Or it's used in, you know, a raw mango fish curry that I had never had before. And so the the story kind of came that actually... Being able to take those recipes from our farm partners and then translate them to work beautifully for American home cooks um, was the story we most wanted to tell in this like chapter of our lives. And so that's what we're doing. I really love that idea. I think that like our spices, especially here in America, have traveled so far to get to us and to think about the way that they're being used by the people that are so close to them and understand the flavor profile so well. It makes so much sense. And yet it is like something that I've never encountered before. And it also just seems like so much work. I would love to know about like how, how are you organizing the book? How are you taking these home recipes and making them work for other people? Yeah, it's been a long process. You know, we we got the deal um, early 22, so about a year and a half ago now. And I haven't been able to, like, commit the time until a month ago. Well, you've so- been doing a whole other thing, <laughs> trying to run a company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and the book won't come out until 2025. So, you know, it's two years from last week is our pub is our pub date. Um we have a pretty built out team. So there's myself. I'm sort of the wrangler and the relationship builder, but I'm not a recipe developer and I'm not a chef. So that's where my like absolute superpower, which is Asha Lupi, who's at From Head to Table on Instagram. She's our recipe editor. She is coming with me on these like exhausting travels for the next four months, um, visiting all of our farm partners. And it's her job to like sit there with her digital scale, measure out every single thing that a farmer is putting in, um, and then recreate it here in Oakland at our test kitchen and figure out, you know, what are the substitutions we're going to make, what recipes. So for example, our uh, saffron farm partner made just on the side, like without even showing us how she made it, uh, Alia made us this beautiful pumpkin chutney that is walnuts, hung yogurt, 
pumpkin and black cardamom. Mm. And they just eat it like as as a pickle almost yeah. uh, with their rice and dal and, and curries. And the minute we tried it, we knew that it would be an incredible dip. So it's not going to be exactly, you know, the pumpkin chutney that it is in that Kashmiri household, but it'll be inspired by that. So I think we're also treading the line of... Um, where are we going to really, really stick to something that is true to a family recipe and tell people that, you know, yes, it's a two-day adventure to make this, but it's worth it. And where are we going to take inspiration? We also, we have a photographer traveling with us everywhere, Malati, who's been on our team now for about two and a half years. We have a researcher who's doing like tons of background research into each family, each cuisine, each region, because I think there's such a feeling for me that as the translator off regional South Asian cuisine. Like I have so much privilege to be that translator and it's not a privilege we take lightly at all. So we want to go in as informed, as well-researched um, as we can. Um, and I know that as a CEO, you know, if I came and tried to do it myself, I would do a very surface level job. So that's the team. Well, I feel like it's the same thing with running a company, right? You like build a, gr- a good group of people that can make something that's beyond what would happen just on your own. Yeah. And it sounds like a really fun and exhausting project to be working on. I don't know if you're too early in the process, but I'm curious if you've had any meals recently that are going to make their way into the cookbook that are especially memorable for you. I mean, we're a month in and we just got back from Kashmir. So yeah. I was in Kashmir a week ago and we uh, had two days at our saffron farm uh, partner's house and our Kashmiri chili farm partner's house. It was fascinating. They live an hour away from each other and they're both indigenous Kashmiri Muslim families, but their cuisines could not be more different from each other. Wow. Which is just so special to understand the nuances. So one of the recipes that just stood out to us so deeply was a pulao. It's a simple vegetable pulao, but it's cooked in mutton stock. Mm-hmm. And the mutton stock is from a uh, mutton recipe that makes up the curry that you eat the pulao with. So you're using truly every part of the animal. And the curry is called ab gosh, and it's actually the tail of, of the mutton. And it's a whole um, milk-based curry that's really about softening the tail down so that it's really, really like soft and delicious mm, like oxtail kind of yeah exactly it's mm. like it's essentially goat tail yeah. instead of oxtail but it gets um, kind of like cartilagey and and shreddy in that way yes cool. exactly it's like really tender and like really rich in terms of taste and mm-hmm. it's not gamey at all which i was surprised by like i saw the tail and was sort of like i don't wanna <laughs> um but it was amazing yeah you had to I, it's my job and it's also a respect right yeah. like if we're going into people's homes and they're showing us their culture then it's our job to go in with a super open mind and be like, we will eat as like a blessing, whatever you give us, and then translate that sort yeah. of equitably. An open mind and an empty stomach. Yeah. And how did that compare to the other farming families' cuisine that they were cooking? So I would say that the saffron farming family, uh, the Mir family, uh, their food was much gentler. So they cook a lot of things in stock, but it's not overly spiced. They're not adding a lot of different elements. It was very simple food. I think part of that is that they grow saffron for a living. So they're used to taking this like beautiful aromatic ingredient, saffron, and then really doing the least possible to highlight it Mm -hmm. because then just letting it be, right? Whereas the Kashmiri chili family, they grow chilies. So it's intense, it's punchy, they add lots of spices in there. Um, So it's heavier food, so much fun to eat. 
We made something called a var masala with the Kashmiri chili farmers, which is essentially um, like a pre-made spice cake that you hand pound. So if you assume that like a pesto gets dry, sun-dried and yeah. turned into a cake that then you can use through the year to add flavor to your dishes. Oh, cool. It's like a, a Japanese curry brick also. Maybe. Exactly. Yeah, that's like a very good comparison. But it uses something called pran, which is a wild onion in it. So it has the depth from the from the Kashmiri chilies and also like a very soft oniony flavor from the pran. Um, I brought three cakes back with me and I've been using them in absolutely everything. Wow. Okay. I want to see a picture of those later. I love that. And I love this idea that like the cooking style and almost like the temperament is related to the kind of ingredient that they're growing. It feels like a like a children's book or a movie kind of, you know, that like beautiful connection into um, how like the ingredient itself impacts how you're cooking. Yeah. And, and I think it's like such a testament to terroir and this idea of what like I think we've talked about farm to table cooking for so many different cuisines. Right. But I really think that for South Asian food, uh the norm in North America has been Northern Indian heavy mm-hmm. paneer, butter masala, chicken, you know, butter chicken, all of that. And I think it feels very exciting to be able to tell real farm to table stories of South Asia. Like I just feel very lucky to be able to do that. Definitely. And to have the spice be a part of the farm to table conversation and not just an heirloom tomato. Exactly. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how you go about expanding your roster of spices because I I subscribe to the Diaspora emails. So I feel like all the time I'm seeing that new products and new things are coming out at this scale at this point. How does that work? Do you have like a whisper network telling you about new farmers that you should check out? Do you have a list of spices that you want to carry that you don't right now? It's a mix of things. So in the early days, it was a lot of outreach, right? Like I was visiting 20 farms to find the one turmeric farmer that we were going to work with. Um, Now, it is more like a whisper network than it used (laughs) to be. Like people will write to me, they'll send samples to us because we have 140 farmers in our network. It's a lot. It's a lot. And they all talk to their communities and their friends saying that, hello, we have this great buyer who pays four to six X the commodity price, really cares about quality. Um, So people will write to us and, and we'll just keep absorbing samples. At this point, though, like we have 30 spices and I think now we're at 10 masalas, like spice blends. Yeah. So we have a full plate and it's more about curating things that we think there's an audience for. So, for example, while we were in Kashmir last week, we we started working with Pran, this wild onion shallot hybrid. And immediately there was an understanding that actually offering little um, like uh, slices of fried Pran could be incredible. Mm. And every um, woman in the valley, in the Kashmiri Valley, grows a little patch of pran um, in her kitchen garden. So this could provide, so if we're able to create like a women's co-op around it, this could provide a little bit of extra income to a bunch of different women in the valley, as long as we can figure out the processing and stuff. And we have amazing processing partners in every region that we work in. So like, that's an idea that I'm now marinating in that I don't know, I hope we'll launch in the middle of next year. Sometimes my wild ideas work and sometimes, you know, building a completely new rural supply chain proves too hard. We can't get quality consistently from them. And and I have to give up on some of these um, hopes and dreams. But like... A good example is we we got connected to this farming community up in Uttarakhand, which is essentially in the Himalayas, uh, in the northeast of the country. And... uh, 
it's 40 villages. They all grow something called pahari garlic, which means mountain garlic. Mm-hmm. It's a super potent garlic that even in dried form, it tastes like garlic bread. Like it's as if you're eating bread and butter and garlic all together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they were only producing a couple hundred kilograms at a time. We knew that if we launched it, it would go wild. Um, and so we needed about 2,000 kilograms to actually sustain it as a product and for it to be worth everybody's while. So we've spent the past two and a half years giving them two different like capital loans to help them build a completely mountainous uh, processing facility seven hours from the nearest town up in the mountains. I think it's like 10,000 feet above sea level. Um, road access is only a couple months of the year. And it's been madness, but over three years, we've actually pulled it off. And now we are in stock with garlic at least half the year. So with enough sort of grit and gumption, it does happen. But sometimes it's too mad and I have to let it go. My God, I feel like the inside of your brain must be insane. Like whenever I get overwhelmed with doing too many things, that I'll keep that in mind. because That's like <laughs> such an involved process. And I'm glad you mentioned the masalas because I wanted to talk to you about um, just how your team and you approach developing blends, um, especially like blends that have so much cultural and personal significance and variation. Do you always have one in mind or how do you go about like for example developing the chai masala our process is madness to be honest with you just like the other thing (laughs) (laughs) I think as a team what you know we know that it's so hard what we do every day and I think what keeps us going is that we know we work super super hard at it um so, you know, to, to backtrack to the masalas, at this point, chai has been around for about three years in our roster. It is our most popular spice by a long shot. Um, when I started developing the chai masala recipe, it started with what is the chai that I love drinking, right? Like it's all all recipes are inherently personal. So we lead with the personal weight. We're not trying to be the perfect chai experience for every South Asian person in the world. You know, the way that I drink my chai and my dad drink my chai are completely different. He thinks my chai is disgusting. Um, I think it's great. So usually... I think rather than give you chai, chai was a very personal example. Okay. I'll give you garam masala as an example. So Asha and I came up with a garam masala recipe. She and I have a very close working relationship and like sometimes are able to just finish each other's sentences as we make iterations of things. I think we made about six iterations. We felt really good about it. And then we gave five or six samples to uh, different elders in our community. So a couple of team members, moms, uh, my auntie and the feedback that we got was devastating. Oh, no. They were just like, this is crap. I don't know what you think this is. This is not garam masala. Like, And we were about a month out from launch, which is really cutting it down to the wire for us. Yeah. Was there like a specific element that they took issue with? There was just the complete package? They told us that it was all like absolute rubbish. Oh, no. There wasn't even, you know, one ingredient is not okay or take one thing down, which is feedback that we can work with. There was a nothing about this works and you clearly don't know what garam masala is. Not from the aunties also. Exactly. Back to the drawing board. We really needed auntie approval. So what we did is we used ETO books. I feel like I'm like a walking spokesperson <laughs> to find every garam masala across our office cookbook collection, which was about 18 recipes. So like Nick Sharma, Meera Sodha, Tejal Rao's one on New York Times, like everywhere. And then we made all of them. And then we made our version and then we ranked them. And we basically started looking at, okay, we we also made a, a big pot of sag, which is, yeah. uh, you know what sag is. Um, and we uh, divvied it up into little Dixie cups and then 
tadka uh, so we toasted each blend in in ghee and added it on top of the sag so we were tasting it raw and tasting it in cooked form and then used all that taste testing information to create this giant spreadsheet identifying the traits that we liked in each one and then narrowed that down to a blend that then took another four trials to get to the ultimate blend so and that's did it, our did process did it get onto approval I got full anti-approval. My cook at home, who is a scathing critic of most things I do, loves it. And Good. yeah, I think that's what, what we want to get to is we know that it is, by our standards, the most delicious thing on the market. It may not be, you know, everybody's version of something, but it's, and that's why we call it the house blend. It's our house blend. Your recipe might be different. Great. Take our blend and add something to it and make it your own. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good approach. And I like hearing about how you are testing the masala, like also cooked, because like, obviously, these are blends that are meant for cooking, yeah. uh, although it should be like delicious on its own. Um, so are, are you working on more masalas or you have your lineup and that's kind of where it's at? So last year, we released the like, uh, core masala renaissance connection, which was chai masala, haldi dood, garam masala, tandoori masala, biryani masala, and chaat masala. That for me felt like the core six we wanted to start with. Um, this year, we've released what we're like sort of tongue in cheek calling the Amriki collection. <laughs> um, so it's a very like diaspora, nostalgia, Indian American take on American classics. So we started with pumpkin spice, which you have in your hands. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Um... It looks so great. How, okay, so pumpkin spice you started with? We started with pumpkin spice. Then we launched, we just launched a steak masala and a taco masala. And they're just so fun. fun. Yeah, like I think for me, there's, there's, they're not uh, rooted in a deep authenticity. They're fun. They're how, like it's the Indian American cooking that I grew up with, that Asha grew up with. Um, the steak masala was just taking our amazing raw spices and, you know, single ingredients and saying, we actually have the best Montreal steak seasoning. Let's make it. <laughs> then um, uh, we just launched a hot cocoa, which actually rolls out in Whole Foods across Northern California next week. And the final one, which we're actually waiting for it to arrive from India, so it hasn't launched yet. Here's the big spoiler, is popcorn masala. Oh, my God. So fun. And didn't you do like a collab with, was it Jacobs with and Jacobson. Salt? I, I should probably throw it out because it must be old by now. But I think I still have a jar of this. It's like a nutritional yeast turmeric. And uh, it's pumpkin. so yummy. It's it's a turmeric, nutritional yeast, and salt. Yeah, I think I just said pumpkin when I meant to say popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just those three ingredients. This one is like, um, it has garlic in it, it has chili in it, it has chaat masala in it. So it's a little bit more complex. They're both super delicious. I think one is if you just want like straight on cheesy flavor. Um, and this one is heat, umami, cheesy, all in one. Yeah. So to rewind to pumpkin spice for a second, what were your thoughts on pumpkin spice prior to releasing a pumpkin spice? I think we had complex feelings as a team. And, you know, we've talked about it before because I didn't, I moved to America 12 years ago. I didn't have a lot of the like cultural context of the history of pumpkin spice in like... The nostalgia to see it. Yeah, yeah. Or, the, or the, even just the understanding of how it fits in with the rise of Starbucks or like mm. um, how it fits in versus into white culture. Like there was a lot there. <laughs> um, the memes, yeah. Yeah, all the memes. Like I think like the Christian girl autumn memes went 
all the way over my head. I didn't understand anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, Asha made me a, my first PSL a year and a half ago. Uh, and she she made basically a syrup with actual pumpkin and a, a spice blend that she'd come up with um, and maple syrup. So that was a syrup. And then she had a shot of coffee and then milk foam on top. That sounds it, so good. It was the most delicious thing I'd ever drunk. You know, so for us, there was a... We know that we have the most delicious nutmeg on earth. Like our mace is like a floral, fruity revelation. Our white pepper is so sort of sharp and lemongrassy. We have all the raw materials. Let's just do it and have fun with it, not take it so seriously. And as of, I think, the past three months, our pumpkin spice has eclipsed our chai masala on the website. Oh, my God. Which is saying a lot, you know? Yeah, it's because uh, it, our chai masala numbers are sort of out of control. Um, and I think people, before, a lot of times I would get this response from people when I would tell them that I run a spice company that sources from South Asia, they would be like, oh, well, I don't really cook Indian food. And I would look at them being like, do you use black pepper? Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a feeling of we sourced all these single ingredients. And while we are rooted in South Asia, you can use these spices for any cuisine. And so the Amriki collection for us became a way of saying, Use it in anything, you know, use it to play. You're not boxed into South Asian cuisine. You you should know where it comes from. But that's just the starting point. Yeah. You know, I wrote a piece for Taste earlier in the year about spice blends specifically that um, I talked to Asha as a part of. And I talked to Marijuan, who does Spicewala, and he was telling me that that all of their top performing spice blends are non-cultural spice blends. Um, That would be, or maybe what I would say. American cultural spice blends. American cultural or like a... Like a steak spice blend, you know, or something yeah. like that, um, that he was saying that also maybe there's, there's this idea of like accessibility in some kind of way that people are like, I don't cook that kind of food. Yeah. But to me, I think it's almost the reverse, which is like maybe the pumpkin spice is your way into diaspora if you haven't previously. And then you try it and you're like, wow, these spices are so delicious. And I actually do cook with these. Yeah, it already. opens a door essentially. Yeah, it's for like people. the Trojan, the Trojan horse of spice <laughs> blends. <laughs> maybe. I think ultimately what's important to maybe note, like rather than saying that it's the non-cultured, I think in America, uh, like white consumers make up the largest chunk, right? Mm. And therefore, when you're running a food company, to some degree, like you are catering to a white audience. Um, Having a steak seasoning allows you to be somewhat familiar and be the little open the door, be a gateway to them, and then use that exactly as a way to then say, actually, I know I love biryani. Like, I've just never thought to make it before. This company gives me the tools, the like step-by-step recipe and the confidence to make a biryani. So I'm going to do that too. Definitely. And I'm glad that you mentioned like including the recipes as a part of that, because I think that the recipes that Asha does are so great. Um, Did you always want to have recipes like available on the website to go along with the products? Or did that kind of come together later on? Always wanted it. So like when we launched cardamom in 2018 uh, via Kickstarter. We did uh, a 10-page recipe zine as part of it. and But I think I do not have the skills that Asha does. Like, Asha is a genius. Um, and so she actually slid into our DMs late 2019, early 2020. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I, I didn't have really much of a budget. And I think there was just this deep feeling that even if even if we don't have the budget, we should invest in this because having beautiful recipes to show people how to use these spices is going to be key. 
And that has proven true again and again. You know, people come back. We we look at our Shopify data and the recipe section of our page is always one of the most heavily trafficked sections. And even in terms of our newsletter, like it is the newsletters that people open. Also, I think because Asha has developed... Um, a relationship with our community mm-hmm. where they trust her deeply and they know that if Asha's giving them their, them a recipe, it's not going to be half-assed. It's going to be so well-tested and it's going to be thoughtfully written too. Yeah, and I think on one level, it's an investment in your customer base. And then for the customers, it's an investment in the spices that they've already purchased, right? Because yeah. they have like a new way to work with that. And I maybe see like this other element of diaspora, like the non-spice products that you've launched and been selling on your site as a similar thing. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what it's been like bringing in like non-edible products into the universe. Yeah, we've had some like amazing hits in this department and some like real fails. So I think we're still figuring it out. But maybe but, give me one of each. Yeah. <laughs> so and yeah, not not to. I love every partner we've ever worked with. I think just some things resonate with our community and some don't. So for me, the thinking was, okay, people are buying spices and they're proudly displaying us on their shelves and cooking with us every day. How can we enter their kitchen in more ways than that? Especially because we're a company of entirely home cooks. You know, all of us cook Asha's recipes most days of the week. Um, So to give you an example, like I always had some form of a salt pig in my kitchen, which is just like when you're a line cook, you have like a little, you know, dish by by the, the stove that you're pinching and using. Yeah, a little bowl of salt. Exactly. Like a little clear container of salt. It's pretty tacky, but it sort of does the job. Um, and then over time, I had nicer and nicer salt pigs by my stove. And I just felt like, oh, how fun would it be if there was one that was essentially a tiger's mouth? That was the extent of the idea of like, that would be fun. And we talked to one of our um, production partners who run these really equitable um, artisan-led factories and production facilities in South India, um, Kavya. And I was like, you think you can do it? And she was like, give me a couple months. We iterated on, I think like over 25 tigers, which meant like, this amazing potter actually sitting there and like hand building and then firing and glazing these tigers. And it kept not working. The angle was never right. You couldn't fit your um, like knuckles into it well enough. Like Mm -hmm. the reach wasn't good or you couldn't fit enough salt in it. And it took a lot of time. I think a year and a half later, we opened them up for pre-order. And now we have sold, I think, over 2,000 salt tigers. Wow. Which is a crazy number of like a niche, super kitschy, tiger-shaped salt storage thing, which is also quite expensive because it's so handmade. Yeah, but that must feel affirming to you that an idea that you had is maybe like, oh, this could be fun, like resonates with people in that kind of way that people like do want to bring that into their home. Yeah, I think it's a really validating feeling. But I think the formula for us has been making sure that it's always sourced and produced to like our equity standards, right? And like really not cutting corners there and then telling that story. That's one. Two, making sure it's really beautiful, not launching it prematurely. With the Salt Tiger, I got tempted to launch it six months earlier than we did. Um, and it wouldn't have been as cute as it ended up being. Um, so really sticking to our guns on, we will wait until it's perfect. And then the third one is... Uh, it being something that really aligns with uh, what we're already known for for customers, you know. And that segues perfectly onto our collabs that have not done well. (laughs) So peak pandemic, we were like 
Jing of Fly by Jing is a dear friend. We really look up to Fly by Jing as a company. And they made sweatsuits, right? And they were like really cool. Yeah, they were so cool. They're amazing. Like I feel like they've won the sweatsuit game. And I was like, I want to make a sweatsuit too. Um, and we made these pink and orange, like super artisanally made tie-dyed sweatsuits. And it was a very stark reminder that we are not a sweatsuit company. We are not a fashion company. We are a spice company. And you know, they have just done, performed very, very badly and people don't want to pay as much as they cost. Yeah, which they, I, I know that firsthand that it can be a lot to be producing things, especially at that quality, but they sound yeah. cute. They're cute, yeah, but it didn't work. Yeah, some brands are doing that. Do you know like Sunday School, uh, yeah. like the weed gummy brand? Their sweats are so good. Also. I have their um, green broccoli jacket oh, and do? I love it. Yeah. I saw someone on the subway yesterday with one of those and I was like, I can't reach out and touch it because that would be weird. But that's the impulse that I have right now. I think they've like pretty hardcore pivoted, though, where like the the uh, fashion is almost like bigger yeah. than the gummies, you know? Yeah. I'm not trying to pivot to sweatsuits. I'm, I'm good in spices. Or gummies. <laughs> or gummies. So, OK, the cookbook is happening. Already that's a lot. Is there yeah. anything else coming up in the pipeline that you're excited about? So, okay, cookbook will come out in 2025. We got into the Whole Foods Accelerator. So we're like slowly over the next year and a half, we'll be rolling out with select products in different Whole Foods regions. Congratulations. Thank you. It It's scary, but it's also exciting. And I think the feeling has always been that, you know, we can be like the rogue amazing spice company that is like great at direct-to-consumer and like reminding you guys to go to a website and buy spices. But ultimately people are buying spices at the grocery store. Yeah, they're like, they have their ingredient list to cook something. Exactly. And they realize they don't have coriander. Exactly. And so that's where we need to be. Um, we're going to learn a lot through that process, you know. And um, besides that, I think for me, it's really about stabilizing the team and figuring out how to be a good manager. I, I think in the past six years, I went from being a 23-year-old, like, punk-ass kid um, who didn't know how to be a manager or a leader to now leading this team of 25, who I just feel like it's such an—yeah, it's a huge responsibility to, to get to lead very brilliant people every day. Um, so there's a lot there. I do think around the cookbook travels, we're going to be um, launching, like, very small drops of special things that we find along our travels. Mm. My, like, working title right now is The Diaspora Suitcase. Um, Cute. And to give you an example, while we were in Kashmir, we found this really gorgeous, super light um, copper kitchenware. So like uh, cutlery, plates, bowls um, that all had sun and moon and star emblems engraved and embossed into them. Okay, like, I need this. <laughs> it's so beautiful and like remarkably affordable too, like not super crazily priced because they're so light. Yeah. So I literally bought an entire suitcase worth of kitchenware that I think will drop on the site at some point. Good so, for shipping also if it's lightweight, I guess. Thank God. No more heavy stuff, no more glass. Yeah. You did pivot from, from glass to tins. Was that part of the reason behind that? Yeah. I mean, we were spending so much money on shipping. There were breaks. Not that much. Our shipping team was amazing. Um, also, we wanted to move our supply chain from America to India. So... We buy all of our stuff from farms across South Asia, right? But then previously, we were shipping it across the world and manufacturing it in New York, Colorado, and California. Chaos. And so what we've been able to do at this sort of six-year mark is streamline all of our production at one facility in Mumbai. And then it comes here 
gently and slowly on ships. Um, and it's just much more cost effective. So a couple months ago, we actually dropped our prices, which in this economy, I feel very proud that we did. Yeah, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. And I, I know the um, the waiting for the boat to come <laughs> mentality because KXC uh, in the magazine that I do, we print in the UK, which is not as far as India, but it also comes via boat. And I feel like when I'm waiting for the boat, like I'm like a, it's like the 1800s and like my family has like left the country and I'm waiting for them to come back. It's very quaint, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's also very how Victorian. spices have made their way here for a long time. For hundreds, yeah, thousands of years. Yeah. 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 Right now we actually have a boat that was held at port at the port of Oakland for the past two months. Mm. And so like all of our beautiful spices, we've just been waiting for them while they languish at sea. Nightmare. So similar. I've also been feeling very Victorian because I feel like I like stare wistfully at the port and like yeah. you wait for my beloved. Lead like a renegade pirate crew to, to liberate the turmeric from the ship. <laughs> liberate the garam masala yeah oh well that's like so many amazing things and i'm so excited for all of them and to close today i want to play a little like rapid fire game with you so i'll give you a category and you can just tell me the first answer that comes into your head okay let's do it i'm terrified now take a breath it's gonna be fine okay um favorite cookbook oh shit i know Um, salt fat acid heat so i mean you know she she created the bible favorite go-to late night snack Instant noodles, the Momofuku ones, or the Omsom ones. Mm. Favorite season for cooking? Fall and winter. Favorite food TV show? Ooh, uh, waffles and mochi. So cute. Yeah. Uh, favorite Bay Area restaurant? Ooh, hard question. I have two. Sorry, I'm going to cheat. Do it. Day trip, amazing, funky, fermentation forward, dear friends of mine. And then Judubu, which is like California Korean I could eat there every day until the day I die. Cool. Favorite Mumbai restaurant? Ooh. Uh, I also have two. One is Bombay Canteen. Uh, they're just legends of modern Indian cooking. Like they tell stories of what South Asian food is better than anybody else. Um, and then the second is my local Bani Puri Rada. Nice. Um, okay. This is a hard one maybe. So you can reject this outright. But top three spices? That's okay. I can okay. do this. I, I was going to do top one and I was like, no, no, no. Top three. <laughs> I would I would have been upset. So I think top one is black pepper because it like makes every day feel special. You can grind it and be like, ooh, wow. Um, and our black pepper is so aromatic. Um, next is our chai masala. Uh, I didn't enjoy chai until I developed our chai masala. So that feels important. And then the third one, the like ancestral Muslim in me, it feels like it's saffron just because there's so much history and like family recipes related to that that ingredient. And I just adore the family we source it from. Love that. Okay. Most overrated spice. Ooh. Dude, I don't know. Um, flavored salts don't really do it for me. Like I'm sort of like just I I just, yeah, I don't use them. I think they're a little silly and a little quaint. I had an accidental mix-up with what I thought was normal salt, but it was lavender salt. And I've never really recovered from that one. So I agree with you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay, most underrated piece of kitchen equipment. Ooh, that's hard. You know, people think that garlic presses are silly, but I feel like my garlic press has, like, upped the amount of garlic I add to every recipe for the past year that I've had it, which I appreciate. So... I'm pretty into my garlic press right now. Okay, I love that you're going to represent the garlic press. I feel like that's Me and only love. me. <laughs> yeah, you and only you. If, if, if you get to eat more garlic as a result of it, I think that's a net positive. Exactly. Okay, to close, a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat. 
Oh, oh my God. So um, Enid Blyton books, which are like these, she's this British author who I think turned out to be kind of problematic, but it was my entire childhood was reading these books. And it was about, it was always little kids like frolicking into the English countryside. I had a very colonial childhood, unfortunately. They would frolic into the English countryside and then they'd eat treacle pudding and like golden syrup. And uh, I don't know, there were these like mystical British treats that made me think that British cuisine was so delightful. And then I went to the UK and was like, what? <laughs> um, so I almost want to like go to an edit Biden book and have tea time in the forest with them. I like that. I think I felt similarly about uh, mm, Turkish Delight from reading, like, <laughs> uh, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia and then trying it for the first time and being like, wait, no. <laughs> well, I hope we can both go to one of those fantasy tea parties. Thank you so much for coming by. This was great. Thank you for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.